One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam. I must confess, I love Brandon O'Neill, and if you know me, I usually don't say that about self-professed Marxists, and that's what Brandon terms himself, a Marxist, a libertarian Marxist of that, confusing, I know. But before we delve into that, I would like to remind you that this podcast can be supported on Patreon. Just type in my name, Aaron Flam, and donate as much or as little as you like. If you're Swedish, you can swish me at 0768943737. 0768943737 and I also encourage you to check out my YouTube channel where you can find among other things my latest comedy special with English subs and although Brendan O'Neill's libertarian Marxism might confuse you there's nothing confusing about Brendan's writing it is always clear, concise and driven by a sub-torrent of justified rage against stupidity Maybe I love him because he was the most hated man on British campuses in 2015 for defending free speech, or that he became globally hated after the terror attacks in Manchester, as the rest of the world wanted to battle terror with love, a stratagem that has thus far proven unsuccessful. Brendan wrote a piece called Time for Anger. He has been called one of the world's funniest and fiercest critics of groupthink. He is the editor of Spiked Online, and a regular contributor to The Spectator and The Guardian, and I'm not sure that he'd approve, but I see him as sort of alt-left. We meet at Spike's office in London the same week I attended break-in convention. They are ultra-modern and minimalist, and not something you'd expect for a magazine that basically spawned out of the Communist Revolutionary Party. This is our second attempt at this after I failed recording this conversation during a 24-hour stopover debate Brendan had in Stockholm earlier this year concerning boycotting Israel, in which he was defending Israel, or at least attacking people who wanted to boycott Israel. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, Brendan O'Neill. Uh, now, I've tried to uh, interview you once before when you uh, visited Sweden for like 20 hours, 
but uh, my listeners know my technical incompetence by now, and uh, you're uh, not my first failure when it comes <laughs> to technology. So, um, Brandon, who are you for the Swedish listeners? I am the editor of Spiked, which is a daily online magazine based in London, but speaking to the world. And we are a left-wing, libertarian, pro-enlightenment, pro-reason, pretty switched on magazine, I would say. Quite provocative at times, uh, very sensible in my view. So that's what I do for a job, and I love it. As to who I am, um, that's up for question, I suppose. I describe myself as a Marxist libertarian. Lots of other people describe me as right-wing. Some people describe me as alt-right, which I have a deep, profound issue with. I think that's completely wrong. So um, I don't know. I think maybe possibly through this discussion, we might find out better who I am in political terms. Yes. And first and foremost, I found you uh, through Natalie Rothschild, mm -hmm. who worked for you for yes. a while. And we met at the Gothenburg Book Fair like years ago. Mm -hmm. And she interviewed me. And I told her that I thought because Obama was campaigning at the time, it was his first uh, campaign. I told her, no, I don't believe in Obama, because I think hope is evil to promise people. And uh, Natalie took real offense with that. And then she went to you and told you that I had said that about hope. And uh, you just looked at me just for a second and said, well, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> God, that was a long time ago. If it's all the way back in, when was that, 2008? Yeah. 2009? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think actually, um, you know, one of my great heroes, who is uh, Spinoza, the great Dutch man of the Enlightenment, he made the point that there's a great similarity between fear and hope. And he was saying, really, that there's a similarity between the politics of fear and the politics of hope, because both of them really are about waiting around for someone to do something. Yes. The fearful person is waiting around for something awful to happen, and he has no control over it, and it's just going to sweep over his life and ruin everything. Uh, but the hopeful person is waiting around for someone to come and save him and make everything better. And again, he has no real agency. He's just yeah. hoping things will get better. Uh, so, so it's uh, a way of avoiding personal responsibility. Yes, yeah, so it's a way of avoiding taking action or, or even more importantly, thinking about the problem society faces at the moment, thinking about what may, might be done about them and thinking about what you as an individual might do. So instead you just hope. Uh, so I find hope a pretty flimsy thing. Having said that, I am pretty optimistic about the future, more so over this past year than I have been at any other time, because I think it's possible we are living through a democratic awakening um, from Brexit, even Trump. Which I don't support Trump, but what a brilliant upset that was to the establishment as we knew it. Various things that are happening in Europe. There's something is rumbling. People People are rumbling and think, and they're agitating and they're rising up in various strange ways. And so, I find that very positive. So, so uh, because you might be like the first young person of English descent that I've actually met who said that they're pro-Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so, not that many of us around. No. Brexit is among certain, among youngish people, I guess, um, particularly among those who describe themselves as left-wing or, or, or small-l liberal, um, Brexit's not a very popular thing. And I think this is the great failure of the British left. I mean, they've had many failures over the past 150 years. I think possibly their failure to recognize the radical potential in Brexit is their greatest failure. I think that could well prove to be the final nail 
in the coffin of the British left. They're, they're, they, they convinced themselves that Brexit was a right-wing, nationalistic, hateful, xenophobic cry of stupid people. They got it completely and utterly wrong. To my mind, Brexit was a very clear demand for greater democratic accountability and greater democratic control. And more importantly, it was it represented a, a, an extraordinary defiance of pretty much every wing of the establishment in Europe who were on their knees begging the British people not to vote for Brexit. I mean, literally, they were begging us. Yes. Business people, every leading politician, of course, the whole EU, the White House, if we look outside of Europe, across the world, every... The media. The media, uh, particularly the liberal, broadsheet, intelligent, supposedly intelligent media, experts. I mean, I think it's like 90% of academia supports the EU, which, and you think to yourself what extraordinary conformism has descended upon the academy in the 21st century that so many can be of, such, of the same opinion. Uh, but they think that's a wonderful thing and they boast about it, which is bizarre. So all of these people were begging us not to do this. And we said, well, you know what? We know better than you. Us ordinary people, 17.4 million of us, we reckon that we know better than you. So thanks for your advice. We're going to reject it. That, I think, is one of the greatest moments in since we've had democracy in Britain. Because you had, it was a huge vote, right? Yes. Uh, just numerically, uh, the number of people who actually participated. Yeah. And, and you can't say that it's anti-democratic if practically everybody... Because I was um, pro-Remain uh, mm -hmm. because personally, as a Swede, I didn't want to be in, in the EU without Britain. <laughs> and, and as soon as you Brexited, I was like, okay, fuck it. Then, <laughs> then what's left? Yes. Well, that's very nice to hear. And actually, I've heard other Europeans say that. It's like, oh, the EU is not the same now without Britain. But my view is that Brexit isn't the end of it for me. I want every other country to leave the EU. I want Greece out. I mean, Greece has got to get out. The EU is strangling it. Ireland should get out. Uh, Italy, these are two other countries that have been treated like shit by uh, the EU. Uh, all countries should leave it. And I, I will do anything I can to help bring that about. But I think, um, no, you're right. The numbers of Brexit were extraordinary. I mean, uh, the turnout was about was over 72%. And that doesn't sound massive, probably, to many European publics. But that's high for Britain. Yeah. Uh, turnout in our general elections kind of hovers around 60%. So it went up. People took it incredibly seriously. 17.4 million people voted for Brexit, which is more Brits than have ever voted for anything in the history of Britain. So it's the largest democratic mandate of all time in our country. And um, I think it was incredibly positive. It was very daring. It was revolting. We yes. revolted through the ballot box. It's the first time since we got the vote, which was around 110 years ago. It's the first time since Brits got the vote that we used it not simply to reject a political party, which we do every four years. We used it to reject the whole establishment. That had never happened before. And I find that exciting and i think the failure of the left to recognize that could spell the end of them because uh, now uh, you had a snap election recently and uh, corbyn actually gained votes which made me troubled uh, yes so yes we had a snap election Theresa may uh, our conservative prime minister called a snap election uh, hoping that she would 
bolster her majority and get a larger majority so that she could go into the Brexit negotiations stronger and more confident and, and, and really get what we want, which is to leave the EU, including the single market, the European Court of Justice and the Customs Union, which are three things which impact on a nation's ability to make its own decisions. So I think leaving the EU means leaving those three things. Um, however, her majority went down. Um, she lost seats, she lost votes, and Jeremy Corbyn, the supposedly radical leader of the Labour Party, gained seats and gained votes. Um, now, we have to put it into a bit of perspective. It, partly it's because of the collapse of UKIP. So we had the UK Independence Party, which was the pro-Brexit party for 20 years, uh, which was quite right-wing, not particularly pleasant, a bit strange, a bit populist and so on. Um, which over the at the last general election in 2015, it got three and a half million votes. Now it's completely collapsed, of course, because it's surplus to requirements. We're leaving the EU. Who needs UKIP? So it went down to 500,000 votes. It lost three million votes. So a lot of those voters were old Labour people who went back to Labour. So we have to ask ourselves, is this really the rise of the Corbynistas and so on? Or is it simply that old Labour people are going back home to Labour now that uh, we've got Brexit. So there's a lot of questions to be asked, but the reason the result worried me is because it's now been used by very prominent, influential Remainers to say, told you so, people aren't as down with Brexit as we thought, so let's push for a soft Brexit. So I'm worried about the impact it will have on whether we get this democratic thing we voted for. All right. And since last we've met, uh, Sweden has had its first terrorist attack. A guy drove down Drottninggatan, Queen Street, uh, and killed five people. Mm. Fortunately for us Swedes, we, uh, ha- we met the hate with love. So all is well. And uh, you've had a, ter- a few terrorist mm. attacks, actually, uh, mm. in Manchester, the most notable, I think. Mm. And uh, have you handled it with love? Unfortunately, yes, we have. Um, and I don't like it one bit. We've had three terrorist, three Islamist attacks. You're not supposed to say Islamist anymore. This is how censorious and PC we've become. You're just supposed to say terrorism. You're just supposed to say extremist. Uh, but as Morrissey said, an extreme what? An extreme rabbit? And I think that's, that's the question. Um, we've had three terrorist attacks uh, over the past three months. Uh, there was one on Westminster Bridge. A man knocked people off the bridge with his car and then ran into Parliament with a knife. Um, we had the one in Manchester, which was the most horrific, where a guy blew up 22 people at an Ariana Grande concert, specifically targeting young girls. Uh, and then we had the London Bridge attack, where three men drove a van into pedestrians and then ran into pubs and restaurants, including pubs and restaurants I go to all the time and stabbed people in the throat. So this is really horrific stuff has been happening. I think 36 people have died as a consequence of these attacks. And the response has been surreal. The response has been Oasis, the Oasis song, Don't Look Back in Anger, which, don't get me wrong, is one of my all-time favorite songs. I love Oasis. But that's become the anthem, and I think that sums up the whole problem. So after the Manchester attack, people were on the streets and and the news headlines were all... Don't look back in anger. In other words, don't get angry. Just wave your candles, post, put your flowers on the, on the scene of the attack and get on with your life. There's a real attempt after every terror attack, there's this attempt to cultivate passivity among the population, to pacify us. They're really worried that we will become supposedly Islamophobic 
They're really worried that we will attack Muslims and say rude things about the Quran, which you're not allowed to do anymore. And so they say, just calm down. It's not that bad. Let's get on with our lives. And I find that a really problematic response, which is why after Manchester in particular, I wrote a piece saying it's time to get angry about terrorism. And I had more flack for that piece than I've had for anything I've written in years. So, f- so flack the- means unconditional love. <laughs> flack, unfortunately, <laughs> means hateful emails and abuse and accusations of racism. You know, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. The fact that one of the most controversial things you can say in Britain in 2017 is, I'm really angry about terrorism, tells you about the pretty messed up political and moral situation we find ourselves in today. I hate this thing of singing Imagine after terrorist attack. You know, the guy with his fucking piano always turns up and starts, imagine no religion, imagine no this, imagine no that. Everyone's laying flowers. I find it really obnoxious, actually, and really almost like we don't take the massacre of our citizens seriously. That's what I was thinking after Manchester in particular. These people, these young people were killed because they are British citizens. So because they are just like us, this is an attack on us. They killed your children. They killed the children. And a a society that doesn't get angry about the massacre of its own children is a society that has lost everything. It's lost its morality. It's lost the the plot. It's lost its ability to stand up for itself. And, And ISIS, or whoever the hell these people are, ISIS and the Islamists and the terrorists and so on, they recognize this. They, they see these weaknesses and they try to exploit them. And so on one, you have their terror on one side and you have our teddy bear response on the other side and they don't match. And they know that they don't match. So they keep blowing up and they keep stabbing and they keep pushing because they know it's weakening us bit by bit. Yeah. We're strengthening them by refusing to respond strongly to their attacks. I find that really worrying. You know, that's the Swedish model of handling any problem is the silent treatment. Mm. Uh, that's how we handle, like, any problem. Everything, yes. yeah. It's a, and it's not good. I think, you know, sometimes you've got to speak back. But, of course, you know, the thing, that, th- this goes across the board, not only in relation to Islamist terrorism, but all sorts of issues now. If you argue back, people will say, oh, you're stirring up tensions, you're stirring up divisions, you're being Islamophobic, or you're being hateful, and so on. My response is, What's wrong with stirring up divisions? I actually think there are divisions in our society, huge divisions between people's outlooks. You know, there are significant numbers of people in Britain and other European countries who despise our way of life and would either happily attack us for it or think it's justifiable for us to be attacked for it. That's a division in society. No one benefits from pretending that that division doesn't exist. No one benefits from saying, oh, love will conquer all. Love will bring us together. So there's a real self-deception going on. We're pretending everything's fine. It's not fine. It's a bit messed up. Well, you're a lefty, and a lot of this seems to be coming from the left. So I thought Mm. I'd ask you, what is wrong with the left nowadays? Um, well, that's the that's a big question. There's a lot wrong with the left. I think the, the the main thing that's wrong with the left, and everything else kind of springs from this, I think, is that it has abandoned its traditional principles uh, on every level. It's abandoned. You know, the, the left used to be uh, very much about universalism, 
the universalism of man or the universalism of, of class. You know, this is the thing that will bind us together. Let's black and white unite and fight. That was one of the slogans in Britain in the 1970s when working class people rose up against racist policing and so on. There was always this emphasis on universalism. Now the left has completely gone down the rabbit hole of multiculturalism and this idea that um, we should all live in our own little cultural and ethnic bubbles and that's all fine and one bubble should never criticise another bubble and you should never say that a democratic, enlightened Western society is superior to an Islamic society because that would be too judgmental and we're not allowed to be judgmental anymore. So the left's abandoned universalism for multiculturalism. It's also abandoned its other key uh, aim of the past, which was economic growth uh, to the end of getting rid of poverty. The left was very pro-economic growth. You go to the Communist Manifesto through to Sylvia Pankhurst, who was the most radical of Britain's suffragettes. Um, she wrote wonderfully about we should create more things than people need you know, this wonderful... Uh, Sounds very anti-leftist, very anti -leftist. Yeah, read about it. Exactly. But she, you know, in her day, and this, was, this is going back 100 years, that was what it meant to be a radical leftist. Now, of course, the left has abandoned its commitment to economic growth in favor of the politics of environmentalism and even Malthusianism. Uh, you know, the idea that there's too many people in the world, which comes from Thomas Malthus, the original population scaremonger, uh, and, and, you know, the idea now among the left is that we have to rein in growth, rein in consumption, we have to lower people's horizons because we'll destroy the planet. So they've abandoned that as well. And then the third thing I'd say they have abandoned is their commitment to the idea of autonomy, the idea that people could run their lives and possibly even their communities without needing constant interference from priests in the old days or from the nanny state in the modern era. You know, the left used to be pretty good at arguing that people could do things for themselves. You know, it really comes from Immanuel Kant, who I know would not be defined as left-wing in any sense, but yeah. the, the, the Enlightenment ideal that springs from Kant, if anyone reads his essay, What is Enlightenment?, which is a very short essay, it's available on the internet, everyone should read it, it's basically a rant against the nanny state. I mean, it's extraordinary how contemporary it feels. He complains about having a pastor who thinks for him, uh, a doctor who tells him what to eat, a book that tells him how to think, and he, he calls them the guardians, these guardians who tie us to their strings and tell us that life is too hard on our own. And you read it thinking, oh my God, this sounds like 2017. And he says we should break free of that and go on, go it on your own, run your own life, use your own reason. Make your own choices. And uh, the left kind of ran with that in the, in the 1800s and the early 1900s with that idea that individuals could run their own lives. They didn't need to be told what to do all the time. So on those three things, universalism, growth, and autonomy, which were central to the 19th century left in particular, they've abandoned all of that and become very anti-growth, very multicultural, and very pro-state so having abandoned everything it once stood for, the left is now very open to saying the craziest things about all sorts of issues. So my personal view is that the left is over as a historical project. And what calls itself left-wing now is not really left-wing at all. It's actually often small-c, conservative, quite racialist in its thinking, quite bitter, censorious, anti-people, anti-democratic, that's not what I would recognize as left-wing. Authoritarian. Authoritarian is yeah. the key one. Yeah, pro-state, pro-nanny state. But do you think it is because they won? 
because they won. I mean, in Sweden, I mean, I'm not that worried about English people because you're so individualist. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but Sweden is a much more collectivist country. I mean, basically in Sweden, Swedes got rid of the church and then they put social democracy in its place and they worshipped it like a sect mm -hmm. ever since. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, it's in the introduction of John Stuart Mill, who I know you appreciate as well. Yeah. Uh, like the page three or something, it says uh, a state shouldn't do... Uh, uh, enact policies just because it's good for the common man uh, the common man should be able to decide for himself uh, if he and but in sweden we don't believe that we put in any social engineering program that we can find yeah uh, you know to better ourselves yeah i think that and we have we have got something similar in britain but it's come about more recently so we at least have that memory of decades of arguments for greater individual autonomy most prominently from john stuart mill and his book on liberty is probably the finest thing ever written on freedom i mean it's all in there in terms of freedom of speech freedom of thought the right of people to live as they see fit and he says even if they won't do it as good as the government does it he has this argument because you know this is what we hear all the time these days oh but the government knows better through having read loads of books What's the perfect number of minutes you should read to your child every evening? You know, this is what yeah. experts say. I don't think that's true. It may be true in some instances, but the point Mill makes, regardless of whether it's true or not, is even if ordinary people are not as good as you learned people, still they should be allowed to run their own lives because it's only through making choices that you become morally responsible and you become an adult and you learn from your mistakes. It's so important that people are free to make mistakes and free to make the wrong choices. And he, he even has this thing where he says sh people should be free to make themselves ill. He's talking about drinking and smoking and so on. Um, because that's, in a free society, uh, the individual is sovereign over his mind and his body. Uh, and that means the state should do nothing to interfere with his sovereignty over what he thinks and his sovereignty over whether he's healthy or unhealthy. That has been completely forgotten. And I think Sweden, as you describe it, is a good example of where you're almost short-circuited away from the individual freedom argument and went straight for the kind of collective state option. But in Britain, over the past four or five decades, we've seen something similar emerging. And the welfare state has become an extraordinarily powerful force. It, it, it originated uh, post-war in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, as a kind of safety net to protect people when they had no work so that they wouldn't starve. And I think it's a good idea that society doesn't let its citizens starve. That's a good idea. But it grew and grew and grew and became this monster, which now basically intervenes in every area of people, poor people's lives and working class people's lives uh, and tells them how to parent and how to live and what to eat. Um, it, it, it's convinced millions of people in Britain, not, not simply that they're unemployed, but that they're incapable of work. So we have incapacity benefit or disability benefit, which often goes to people who are not really disabled. So it's kind of decommissioned vast numbers of people and turned them into children who are looked after by the state. And I think the left doesn't recognize how utterly destructive that is of individual autonomy and of social solidarity, because the more reliant you are on the state, the less likely you are to look to your neighbor or your friend or your family and to build those bonds of reliance that we might have done 100 years ago. So this is the thing I think countries like Sweden forget, 
which is that the, the, the state-enforced collective solution actually destroys community solidarity because it brings people more into a relationship with the faceless bureaucrats in Stockholm, which bit by bit tears them away from yeah. the guy who lives next door or the woman at the end of the street or someone you might have turned to in the bar and say, Look, I really need a job. Can you get me a job? Those relationships break down as well. So the failure of the left to recognize how destructive welfareism can be and um, phony state-enforced collective national solidarity, that's a real problem as well. I usually, when I try to explain this to Swedes, I, I try to explain it in terms of, well, if you saw uh, a parent and a child and the parent was constantly just chugging down trans fat into the child and candy and whenever the child screams for something, uh, the parent just... Uh, gives in and gives the child whatever it wants, you'd say it's child abuse at its worst, or at its best, it's bad parenting because mm. you're raising a fucking brat. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's like uh, the, the, the real problem we have, one of the real problems we have in 2017 is that you have the rise of all these kind of groups that claim to be radical leftists, like the Corbynistas is the most clear example in Europe at the moment. Uh, Bernie Sanders in the US and there are other you know Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece although people don't like them much anymore all these different groups are rising up and everyone's saying oh yes you know revolutionary and and and, and class politics is back but these are exactly the same kind of people these leftists are the same kind of people who don't trust the family at the end of the street to know what they should feed their children yeah. or to know how many times a day they should exercise or to uh, know which words we're allowed to use and which words we're not allowed to use, so we all need this kind of political, politically correct re-education all the time. And I always think to myself, if you don't trust people enough to eat sugar when they want to, if you don't trust them enough to have a cigarette in a pub, so you have to ban it in that pub to save them from themselves, how can you claim to trust them to have a revolution or to take control of society? There's a real disconnect between the language that um, these modern leftists use, which is the language of the hammer and sickle, and they still wave the red flag, and they're on the streets saying, yeah, revolution with a fist pump in the air. And what they think the rest of the time, which is we need to put more warning signs on food because people are so stupid, they'll eat themselves into an early grave. We have to ban smoking in more and more places. We have to up the price of alcohol so that these idiots don't drink themselves to death. This is what John Stuart Mill called syntax. You're taxing people for supposedly sinful behavior. And so um, you, you, the more you look at them and the more you look into all their arguments, the more you realize they don't trust us to do anything. So their revolution talk is a complete facade. It's just a cover for what they really think, which is that we need the state to govern more and more areas of life. And, uh, and, as, and as I was saying, and as you were saying, that what that, the impact that has is that the thing they claim to like, which is community solidarity, which they think is more important than individual autonomy. I think they get the balance wrong on that. I think they're both important, but individual autonomy is, is paramount in my mind. Um, what they don't recognize is that all that stuff destroys the, the community solidarity they claim to love. And you can see this. You go around, to, I'm sure you can see this in Sweden, but if you go to very poor parts of Britain, which are very welfare dependent, and I've been to some of these parts of Britain, There is not there is not a strong community fabric. In fact, it, it's fraying. There's lots of crime. People are isolated. People don't look after their local area. These are these are untidy, littered, sometimes quite dirty places. There's no 
social fabric. And it makes perfect sense why there isn't, because these are places that are, uh, are paid for by the state. So why would people have a sense of pride or solidarity? Welfare think, I, destroys that. Yeah, I think actually welfare is very deeply unsolidaric, because, especially mm. if you extend it to everyone, because... Uh, what happens is that there, there are people in society who are truly weak mm-hmm. and they need our help. And then there are people who believe they are weak because they've been told they are weak. So they're in victimhood culture or whatever. They think of themselves as a victim and they will accept the subsidy from the state. But that subsidy could have gone to yes. someone who was actually weak. Yes, I agree. I think there are unquestionably some people in society, pretty small number, ideally, mostly, who, for whatever reason, are incapable of looking after themselves, maybe because they have mental health problems or because they are in extreme poverty. Um, And the state or society or some network needs to be able to assist those people and make sure they are fine. And everyone, I think, pretty much everyone, apart from maybe the most Ayn Rand extremist, thinks that's a good idea. The problem then is when you extrapolate from that to say, to, to have this constantly expanding definition of what they call the vulnerable this is the great fashionable phrase among the british left the vulnerable is such a dehumanizing term for the poor and and working class people you know they are the vulnerable and we have to go in there and by we they mean the middle class uh, employees of the welfare state and the national health service we must go in there and save them and look after them and and give them financial assistance and therapeutic assistance and mental assistance. And they're also, really interestingly, they're all, not only they're constantly redefining who's vulnerable, they're also constantly moving the goalposts in terms of how poverty is defined. So poverty is always, the definition of poverty has gone from being absolute poverty, which is you didn't have enough, much, uh, enough money to live on, to being relative poverty, which means that in Britain in 2017, you can have a really nice house, Beautiful television, a car, all mod cons, a job, but you can still be described as poor, uh, as living in poverty, because they've moved the definition so that it encapsulates millions of people. Why are they doing that? Because the more poor people there are, and the more vulnerable people they are, the more they, the middle class welfareist state, feel important. So you have this almost like a feudal racket, like a pre capitalist pre-modern feudalistic racket where vast swathes of the population are decommissioned turned into vulnerable creatures turned into weaklings in order to boost the firstly the financial standing of of the middle classes because they get paid to look after those idiots and also the moral authority so you have this horrible divide emerging and the idea that that's got anything to do with being left-wing which was about the poorer people overthrowing those other people is surreal to me yeah. So now the revolutionaries have moved into the middle class and now they're basically the new priesthood. Yes, they are the new priesthood. And I think that's a, a really good description for these kind of people, because not only do they um, treat people as incapable in terms of work and so on, but also morally incapable, moral failures. That's really how they look upon the poor. Um, they are uh, moral imbeciles. And they use the wrong language and they have the wrong words and, and they look bad. You know, the, you can just see it. There are parts of Britain and you very rarely see these people in public. They're not in the media. They don't have newspaper columns or anything like that. Working class parts of Britain where the men might have a, a kind of England flag tattoo and they go to football all the time. Um, the women don't have very posh voices. They kind of have what we call common accents. 
and um, they feed their children McDonald's because their children like to eat McDonald's. Um, those parts of Britain, which I, which are very nice parts of Britain, and I know lots of people who live in them, uh, they are looked upon by this new priesthood as kind of uh, horrible places that need to be saved, and the people need to be re-educated, and they need to be morally policed, and after terrorist attacks, they need to be kept in check in case they go and beat up some Muslims. And they have to be told to respect Islam and to respect all cultures and not to use un-PC language. So uh, uh, that's how this kind of new middle-class um, nanny state section of society, that's how it views the lower orders as a kind of mass of people who are stupid, as we know because they voted for Brexit, stupid and unhealthy and fat and they read the tabloid newspapers and they get brainwashed by the tabloid newspapers because they don't have the filtering mechanism that us cleverer people have. These, they have all these prejudices. And, 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 they, and so it's very much like a new priesthood where they are going to these communities to save the poor from their own recklessness. Yes, and it's kind of interesting how the left has gone from religion is the opiate of the masses to <laughs> religion is the opiate of the masses, except for Islam, which is a great religion. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> the, the, it's so strange. I'm, I'm really struck by how the left has, has played this role in, in, in ring-fencing Islam from criticism. That's basically what the modern left in, in much of Europe has done. And, and they justify it by saying, well, if you criticize Islam or if you criticize Muslims, you're punching down because this is a minority religion in Europe. Uh, and therefore, we have to respect it. It makes no sense to me. It's, it's a religion. It's, it's an ideology. And all, you know, no religion or God or prophet or idea should be protected from ridicule. I mean, and this isn't just me saying this, of course. This is something people have fought for for hundreds of years. In freedom Britain, of conscience. Freedom of conscience, freedom, the freedom to not believe, the freedom to blaspheme. In the British context, um, people were put in the stock and pelted with tomatoes or, or hung, drawn, and quartered or had their tongues cut out or had their ears cut off for the right to not believe in the established religion. And now we're going to turn around and say, well, we can't allow criticism of this other religion. And, and so the left, sections of the left, and also some on the right, but predominantly the left, are bringing, in, bringing blasphemy law back in by the back door in a very underhand way. And we've had situations in Britain where people have lost their jobs or been suspended or have even been arrested by the police for things they've said about Muslims or Islam. And of course, the most extreme example in Europe is the Charlie Hebdo massacre. And it's really interesting because I, people think that massacre is like some foreign thing. You know, it doesn't really belong in Europe to have these two extreme Islamists killing cartoonists. It's very un-European. Actually, I think it was quite European because France is a country in which Islamophobia is frowned upon and in which the state will often say, you know, don't be too critical of this religion. Uh, and I think those two killers at Charlie Hebdo were almost like the, the armed wing of political correctness. Because if you live in a continent which always says you shouldn't criticize Islam, that's Islamophobia. What message are you sending to radical young Muslims? You're sending them the message that any criticism of their religion is intolerable. So uh, they it's already dangerous. believe that. They already it's believe in the that. religion. Yes. And then we um, exacerbate that by, uh, you know, whether it's the Guardian. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Or um, government officials or the police constantly saying, you know, please respect Islam, don't blame Islam, Islam's a religion of peace, don't attack it, don't criticize this, don't criticize that. You build up this message in people's minds that it's unacceptable. And, you know, what's really interesting about the Manchester bomber in particular, Salman Abedi, 22-year-old, whose parents were from Libya, they were given refuge in Britain, he was 22, so as Douglas Murray, uh, a spectator columnist here, as he pointed out, he killed one person for every year he was given refuge in the, in Britain. And I thought that was a really nice summary of the kind of hatred these people have for the societies that welcome them and give them freedom and so on. But what's interesting about Salman Abedi in, in terms of the interviews that have come out with members of his family and friends and so on, he seems to have had an obsession with Islamophobia. He was convinced Islamophobia is a terrible problem in Britain his, a friend of his was stabbed to death a few years ago and he convinced himself it was an Islamophobic attack and there was no evidence for that at all. He constantly told his sister that British people are unfair to Muslims and don't respect their culture. And so you get the impression that his attack was very much an attack against Britons who he presumed to be this Islamophobic pogrom in waiting. And you think, well, where could he have got that idea? He got that idea from the mainstream. He got that idea from mainstream colonists and politicians who say the same thing all the time. So the real danger, if we, if we ring friends Islam from criticism, we're actually making the terrorism problem worse because we're telling them they have the right never to be criticized. What we should be saying to people who come to Europe or who are born in Europe is that welcome to our society Here's the basic rule of our society. People can believe and say anything, and you are not allowed to punish them for that. And our reluctance or our inability to say that, to say that very bottom line piece of morality, which I think should be the morality of every society on earth, our inability to say that really makes some people think, ah, that person's criticized me, I'm going to punish them. Yeah. In Sweden, we don't really have freedom of speech, so it's, you know... Right. <laughs> in Sweden, uh, you can legally not insult anyone. That's, That's in our uh, uh, constitution under the rubric, is that how you call mm -hmm. it? The, yeah. head, the headline of freedom of speech. Wow. It's forbidden to, you know... Uh, basically, well, you know, an insult is a form of critique, so... Yes. Yes. Is it, uh, sadly, that is spreading through Europe. I mean, particularly through 
um, human rights legislation. Because, of course, the, the terrible thing about the European Convention on Human Rights, which sounds wonderful, everyone loves the idea of human rights and rights in general. But if you look at the under the heading freedom of speech, it says, whatever article it is, everyone has freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. However, and then it has this long list of caveats and qualifications and certain instances in which a state can, if it wants to, prevent someone from expressing their freedom of speech. And it talks about national security, public health, um, protecting certain uh, ideas and traditions and so on. So that Swedish problem is, I think, being internationalized through human rights legislation, which on the surface look very pro-freedom. But when you dig down, they actually qualify freedom more than they um, bolster it. I always think of the the, the um, difference between the American Bill of Rights, the American Constitution, and the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. The, the, um, the First Amendment tells us just all it says is what the state must never do. Congress shall never pass a law abridging freedom of speech. What's really interesting about our human rights legislation is that it tells the state what it must do. It must give us freedom of speech, and then it may in certain circumstances, take it away from us if we do this, do that, and do this. As it's their privilege to yes. give us yes. something that we should have been born with. Exactly. And I have a real problem with the idea that there should be any legislation on freedom of speech, even to the extent of giving it to us. Um, and that's the great thing about the First Amendment. It, it, if you read it, it just it says, just says Congress shall not abridge freedom of the speech. So it presumes freedom of speech exists and everyone has it. And they are going about and exercising it, and hopefully they are. And it just says, Congress, leave that alone, basically. What we do with our legislation in the modern period in Europe is basically to say, oh, we'll give you here. Here you go. Here's freedom of speech, as if it's a gift to be given to us rather than a living, breathing freedom that we exercise as we choose. So I think there should be no legislation. I don't think the government should say anything about freedom of speech should just leave it alone and we will get on with it ourselves. I, I'm, I think Sweden, as you say, is a, it's an interesting example. I'm convinced. I'm, I'm, I don't have any proof yet, but uh, well, I have some proof, actually. But I'm convinced that Sweden is the point of contagion for this, <laughs> for this type of socialism or PC mm. culture spreading into your country. Because if you think about it, uh, the first country to open its arms to uh, Islamism was basically Sweden. Olof Palme invited Yasser Arafat. He was the first Western leader to do so. And he marched down our streets hand in hand with Arafat. Right. Uh, and through the Palestinian, when it was about national sovereignty back then, but he sort of opened the door. You understand? Mm -hmm. And through the Swedish Social Democrats' contact with your socialists and American socialists and French socialists and so on and so on, I think... It has sort of spread, and also through Sweden's uh, form of exceptionalism, which is that we're an extremely liberal socialist country, and we have it all figured out, and we have a huge welfare state, and all you have to do is, you know, participate through consensus and conformity. Yes, it's it's really interesting that you say that because one of the most notable things in in Britain in recent years, and Natalie Rothschild wrote about this on Spike, is the love that left-wing liberal types have for Sweden. They see it as this paradise, uh, this paradise of socialism, small s socialism, um, welfareism, uh, a, a collectivist state, uh, and conformism. They, they really are actually celebrating the conformism and the fact that there is very little criticism 
in Sweden off some of these political ideas and trends as if they're natural, as if that's the way it always. Well, to Swedes they be. are. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure they are. But the but the, that's I think what British liberals like about Sweden in particular is is firstly the, the welfareism and and the history that it has, which is very different to our history. Um, but also the fact that there's very little questioning of that. And that's something that they find very... Because when I was in Sweden uh, last, and and all the times I've been in Sweden, in fact, I've been amazed how um, little criticism there is of the welfareist idea, including from some on the right. Uh, I've met Swedish right-wingers. They're not right-wingers. Well, I've met... They're socialists, all of them. Yes, exactly. I'm surprised by how um, similar the thinking is. between. I'll meet a Swedish person who says he's a radical leftist, and then I'll meet a Swedish person who describes himself as on the right, and I get excited thinking I'm going to hear different views. And actually, the views are incredibly similar. Um, And I say to them, you know, don't you think there's a problem when the state is responsible for so many areas of people's lives, and wouldn't it be better if those people were responsible for their own lives? And whether it's the lefty or the righty, they kind of look in horror. So um, I think a lot of people in Britain, a lot of um, kind of liberal leftists, not radical leftists really, but liberal leftists look with envy upon Sweden because it's their perfect society because the state is so key to the workings of society and, and they trust the state more than they trust ordinary people. And because there's not that much debate about changing this situation, and they like a lack of debate. So uh, I think it might be changing in more recent years. I think that the love affair with Sweden might be souring a bit. I hope so. Um, and I think I think Sweden, If you, you could be right that it's it could be the contagion or maybe the originator of some of these ideas, but I think it could now become the flashpoint or one of the fa- flashpoints for the falling apart of some of these modern ideas and 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 a flashpoint for the problems that emerge when you pretend there are no problems and i think the the migration issue might blow that up the terrorism thing could become more of a problem i hope it doesn't but we don't know and i think it could become a bit of a good case study of what happens when you say everything's fine and you know somewhere in your mind that it isn't fine yeah, I know, but I think socialism exasperated the problem in Sweden. But Sweden, Swedes were always collectivist, and they believe in unity above everything. So you can't really have a real liberal democracy if if unity mm. is. I read an article by Christina Hoff Summers, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, like in 2012, where she was discussing our gender politics, and she's like, and they don't want any dissent mm. in the gender politics, and she's like, when. Uh, and where did unity become a democratic idea? <laughs> yeah. And and I, I just simply told her when when I met her, "Welcome to Sweden. It's, uh, <laughs> this is where where it's at." You know. Yes, I'm I'm always uh, that's a really good point, and I'm always quite suspicious of calls for unity and consensus. And it's not because I'm a contrarian, and not because I love conflict, but I just know it's not true. I just know that in Sweden. There are divisions. I mean, you only have to look at somewhere like Malmo. There yeah. are social, cultural tensions. There are Jewish people who feel uncomfortable with recent events. And there are women who feel uncomfortable with the, some of the young men who now find themselves on street corners because they're in Sweden and they're not working. There are tensions. There are difficulties. And the same is happening in France. The same is happening in other parts of Europe. Same is happening in Britain. And I, I'm, I differ from other people 
some people who, who raise similar criticisms to the ones that you and I have about modern Europe and modern society and political correctness and so on, they will often say the problem is we're letting in too many people who have different values to ours. That's the real problem. I differ from them because I think the key dynamic is not so much that these people are arriving, although I do wish we had a more democratic discussion about how they come and where they go and so on, rather than it being foisted on us. But I think the key problem is, is in fact, the inability of modern Europe to say what it's all about and to stand up for its values and to integrate these arrivals into something real and substantial. And what that does, it sends a green light to people. They should do their own thing. Hang out on street corners. Keep saying all those anti-Semitic things that you picked up when you were grown up in, in um, uh, Tora Bora or, or, or Baghdad or wherever. That's fine. You know, we're not going to challenge your culture. Islam's wonderful. No one in this, no one in Europe ever criticizes your religion. Come over, come over. That's the dangerous thing because we send them the message that we don't believe in anything, and whatever they believe in is fine. That's not a good message. No, I know. I, there's, uh, I met this uh, young Swedish man uh, a while back. Uh, Philip Ashton was his name. And he told me something really interesting because I know you've been shunned and ostracized from your own movement because of your views. Um, but in Sweden, if you literally translate the word for being you know, a pariah, it's frozen out. Mm. It means you were locked out of the collective into mm. the snow. It was a certain death sentence. Yeah. Uh, and they keep doing this, freezing out people. Now, for me, it's not really a problem because nowadays we have electricity and I wish they <laughs> would take note. But, but, <laughs> but uh, it is uh, a horrible way to, mm. fa- uh, to not face your problems because that's yeah. what it's about. And that is what it's about. I, I, I think that we live, in a, we live in very, very intolerant times. And people think that's a strange thing to say because it looks like we live in very tolerant times, right? You can, in Britain, and I'm sure it's the same in Sweden, or it certainly is across Europe, you can overnight, a man can become a woman. Yeah. You can just say, I now identify as Brenda, and everyone has to call you Brenda or else they could potentially be sacked. You could change your passport. Uh, You know, people, I go into restaurants now, this is a small example, but I go into restaurants now and I get served by someone who's got blue hair and tattoos all over their arms. You, they wouldn't have been serving in restaurants 20 years ago because it would have been seen as unseemly and unattractive. So it looks like on the surface we're very tolerant. People do their own thing. They make their own identities. They play with their identities. They do all this stuff. But underneath all that, it's shockingly intolerant. And if you don't have the right opinions on a whole array of a range of issues, whether it's Islam or multiculturalism or transgenderism or... Uh, feminism in the kind of narrow definition of feminism in 2017, if you don't have the right views on those things, you will be frozen out. You will be turned into a pariah. You will be twitch hunted on Twitter um, and you will be uh, called racist. That's and, the first time and, I heard twitch hunted. Yeah, twitch hunted. That's what, this is a very common thing today. And um, you'll be called racist, misogynist, climate change denier. They have all these phrases that they trot out basically to say you are beyond the pale. Yeah, because I know you hate women because you're pro-porn <laughs> and you're, you're a pro-lad culture. I've read some of your pieces. Yeah. Why, I, why are you defending lad culture? <laughs> it's because um, the, th- the funny thing about feminism today is that the, the more you insist that women are just as capable as men and don't need to have things censored on their behalf, 
don't need extra laws to protect them as they go about their business, don't need parliament or the workplace to change their culture just to make women feel safer. The more you say that I think women are robust enough to be able to deal with life just as men are, the more likely it is you'll be called a misogynist. It's like the more pro-women you are, the more feminists will say you hate women. It's this really, really, really perverse situation. And I defend lad culture because, um, mainly because the campaign against it, particularly on campuses in Britain, is so ugly and censorious, where certain magazines are banned, certain newspapers, tabloid newspapers, which have photographs of scantily clad women, they are banned. Uh, lads are prevented from using certain words. The, the National Union of Students here has a, an anti-lad culture policy where it even um, it, it, it try, it has tried to outlaw the making of animal noises in the student bar. So that's like a 19-year-old lad gets drunk and starts... Are there just certain animal noises like <laughs> pigs or is it any animal? And basically any animal noise, noise made by a young lad is, is not allowed. Um, so, you, so I just find that terrifying. And it's very class-based. It's very class-based. They always, you know, try and say, oh, this goes for all lads, including the middle-class ones. And you think, oh, come on, who are you trying to kid? They really, what's happened over the past 20 years in Britain is that more and more working-class people go to university than ever before. It's exploded in numbers. 50% of young people now go to university. I, I think that's too high, in my personal view. A lot of those people could be working and, being, yes. and could be very productive in society. But they all go, and loads of working-class people go, and it's just so happens that all this anti-lad stuff happens the same time as that, right? So what's happened is that working class boys in particular who have very who have different values to upper middle class girls and upper middle class boys are seen as a problem and so their culture is demonized. And this comes back to the question that we were talking about earlier which is is there are divisions in society. And and the too much of the instinct today is just to suppress them and ban one side of it because we don't like it, or to pretend they're not there. But you and have consent classes as well. We have sexual consent classes. Uh, and can you just quickly explain to the Swedish <sighs> audience who don't know what consent is? So sexual consent is um, when you have sex with someone, ideally they should be consenting, right? You, you mean of they course, want to have sex with you? They want to have sex with you. And, that's, and if they don't, then it's possible that you're raping them. Now, my view is that everyone who's an adult knows this. Right, you know, people generally know the law. They know you shouldn't punch someone in the face. You shouldn't stab someone. You shouldn't steal someone's property with the intention of permanently depriving them of it, which is the English legal definition of theft. They know this. However, when eighteen-year-olds go to university in Britain, they go to sexual consent classes, and in some colleges, including Oxford and Cambridge, they are compulsory. So you have to go. Um, but what? When do people in England start having well, sex? This is the thing. My <laughs> argument, as I as I argued in a in a piece in the Spectator, a lot of these people, not all of them, but a lot of them will have had sex already, right? When they're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, hopefully consensual. Then. Hopefully consensual, and so they will have already ventured into that world, and will all, already learn what's good and what's bad, and what works and what doesn't work. I think those kind of sexual consent classes are, are deeply patronising very censorious because they're basically about telling people how they should think and how they should behave and they really are indicative of the problem with modern feminism which is that it's gone feminism has gone from being a movement which was about saying women should have the right to vote and the right to work and the right to have sex with whoever they want 
I think those are three fantastic demands, and I'm glad women won them. It gone, it's gone, gone from being a movement that said that to a movement which says women are fragile and vulnerable and men are nasty and we need to police the relations between them. That's a very, that's a very pre-feminist Victorian view of both men and women. If you, look, if you look back at Victorian... It's super conservative. Super conservative. If you look back at Victorian-era manuals for how women should live, guide to life for women, they, they said the same thing. They said women are vulnerable. Make sure you're always covered up when you go out. Don't go to certain places. Never drink. Women should never drink. And they said that you shouldn't do these things because men are a bit horrible, especially working class men. Not very nice. A bit gruff. They use bad language and they will touch you. Yes. But Islamists are great. <laughs> Islamists are great, of course. So this is the, um, it's this really, and of course, feminists, those kind of feminists who think that a 19-year-old boy from the home counties is a threat to womankind, even though he's just a bit of an idiot who can't handle his drink very well, they will say that any criticism of Islam is racist, even though, as we know, some radical Islamists have a pretty low opinion of women. But they won't criticize them. So there's that double standard all the time. And it just means you find yourself constantly not only putting forward a vision for society or, or saying, I, I believe in freedom, I believe in this, but constantly just having to strip away all the bullshit and all the myth-making and all the misinformation just so you can say, look, here you go. This is what society's like, and it's not great. So you have to spend so much time trying to reveal the nature of, of, of Western society in 2017 that you often find you don't have time to say, for I would visions. like it. Yeah, for the visions. I'd like it to be like this because, there are, because people say things about society all the time that's not true. But fortunately, in the beginning of the interview, you said you were optimistic now. And I'm, mm. I'm going to guess that you think environmentalism is going to save us. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> no, um, environmentalism, actually, might finish us off. That's my fear about environmentalism. No, it's not going to finish us off this time, because we're going to talk about the divest movement before I let oh, you Oh, yes, know. sure. Yes, yes. of course. Uh, I think, um, well, environmentalism, I think, is awful. Of course. Um, I think it's... Uh, I think it's actually disgusting um, i mean you know people will say to me you're quite critical of environmental i'm like no i'm really super critical because to my mind it represents an accommodation to poverty and if you live in a world in which three billion people earn a couple of dollars a day and they can't feed their children and you're talking about how can i keep my local park fresh and clean then you've got some really fucked up priorities. And there's this idea that, you know, the fact that China is developing so fast is really bad. I think it's wonderful. There's this idea that we need sustainable development in Africa, which basically means no development. You know, they can't possibly have cities like New York no. in Tanzania or Zimbabwe because it would be bad for the environment. It's well, really... they couldn't ha handle that level of civilization. No, of course, they can't possibly. handle it. It's, it's not for them, right? They yeah. should just be making fair trade chocolate. They're already living in the ecological housing, yes, the mud huts. And that's the, and right. <laughs> and so I, so I think, actually, environmentalism is awful and anti-human and misanthropic and also censorious, because if you question it, you're a climate change denier. So um, environmentalism won't save us, but I think it, it, it will do a lot of harm. Um, but why am I optimistic? I'm optimistic largely because of the democratic awakening I think we have seen over the past year. And just, you know, you can sometimes... Think to yourself, mm, maybe people, and, and you said this about Sweden, and I, I thought this about um, about British people and American people. You think you start thinking maybe they are 
conformist. Maybe people are accepting the way things are, and that's really, I don't want them to, and you start panicking. But then recent events show that that's not true. No. And I think there's an element of that in Sweden. You know, uh, with the people lining up behind the Sweden Democrats, for example, which, you know, we all might disagree with Sweden Democrats on a number of issues, but there is a kind of... No, I think as soon as they've passed 13%, it's not about racism anymore. Yes. It's a protest vote it's a protest. against not only the left, but also the right, or exactly the other way around as well. It's And so is with Trump, I think. Yes, that, that's you right. Know, when it's that huge a vote, you think... It's like, you, you know, you think about Brexit, you think... 52% of the public cannot be racist. I mean, no, no. And I know that's not true because I go, to, I walk through the streets every day and I don't see any of that. So when it gets to that size, when it gets to that level, it'd be hard you, to find a, a city as multicultural yes. and as diverse exactly. and pluralistic as London. Exactly. So, so all the lies they tell us about these ruptures or this democratic awakening, I think really need to be challenged. But even with the Sweden Democrats, it's, it's, and also in Germany, there was the alternative for Deutschland, which is kind of wavering a bit now, but there's all these various groups that are emerging and people are putting their hopes in them. And I find that really positive because people are breaking with the two party system that held in Europe for 200 years, you know, right from the revolutionary in revolutionary France, the national assembly, yep. Did you sit on the left or did you sit on the right? I mean, that has defined Europe for 200 years. And people are now kind of walking away from it and saying, bye, we're going to try this guy or this pe- these people or that person. The problem is, I think, uh, there isn't any great group or party or organization for them to try that, to flirt with. So they're flirting with slightly dodgy groups sometimes. Um, if we had a decent, proper, switched-on left, that was genuinely radical and pro-growth and pro-people and pro-democracy, they would be sitting down thinking, how could we make the most of this situation? How can we really live up to people's aspirations for greater autonomy and greater democracy? But of course, instead, what the left is doing is, oh my God, Sweden Democrats, that proves fascism is back in Sweden. Or, oh my God, Brexit, that proves all the working classes of the north of England who voted for Brexit in their millions are racist idiots. So they're getting completely the wrong message. They're very pessimistic about what's happening. I'm very optimistic, even when the votes are going to parties I profoundly disagree with. I'm still optimistic because it represents a rupture from the conformism of the past and from business as usual. That's, I think, a good moment. I agree with you on that. And uh, last time we spoke, it was in Sweden, and you were there actually to, well, debate. Uh, and uh, I don't agree with Corbyn in the least, because I think he's a Hamas-supporting, um, West-hating, <laughs> fucking anti-Semite. That's what I think of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can sue me if you want to. Uh, but uh, you were there to defend, well, I guess Israel against yes. Swedish leftists. Which was kind of weird to see, because you're a leftist. You're not supposed to be pro-Israel. Yeah. Well, I describe myself, and this is obviously ridiculous, I describe myself as anti-anti-Israel. Which is bizarre, because if you put two negatives together, you get a positive. So people yeah. say, that means you're pro-Israel. No, but I, I think I understand, what, yeah. because I don't like to defend Israel, because I'm not an Israeli citizen. I was just born Jewish. It's not my choice. Yes. Uh, but... In a way, it's like, well, everyone else has a fucking country. Why? <laughs> it's because I think the reason I call myself anti-anti-Israel is because, you know, as was clear at that debate in Sweden, um, there's lots of things Israel does that I disagree with. 
Uh, I disagree with some of its military ventures, and so do lots of Israeli people. Um, I, dis- I don't like some of its governments. Some politicians I like, some I don't. But the point is, I feel like that about all countries. Every country on earth, including Britain. I love Britain. I love the people. I love our history. I hate most of our governments. I hate all the wars we've launched over the past 10 or 15 years. So this is the, the, the point I was trying to make there, and at this point I've been making for a few years now, is, is just that question of why Israel is treated as so differently to every other country. Why Israel's government is hated more than any other. Why Israel's wars are seen as more bloodthirsty and evil. Well, they kill children. They kill children. You know, the obsession with it, they kill children. They drink their blood. There's this bizarre blood kind libel. of the blood you libel. It all, it's, yeah. you know, the, the only time, because I read a lot of British press coverage of various world events, the only time you see the word bloodletting in relation to a war overseas is, is when it's an Israeli war. I've seen this word in the British press. They don't say that about um, British wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They call them a mistake and say we shouldn't have done them and we killed so many people, blah, blah, blah. I've never seen them use the word bloodletting. But they didn't kill any children. America well, is, and France yes. and England has never killed no, a child. No, we've never killed any children anywhere. So <laughs> it's really – so that's – I think if your starting point is that question, why is Israel treated so differently? Why is it seen as more evil when it does – quite similar things on a smaller scale. In fact. Mm, yeah, not good right? things. But not good things, but it, same as every other country in the West, but actually on a smaller scale, which is interesting too. Um, I think it personally it's because Israel hasn't bothered to develop these child-safe bombs that only kills adults. Like us, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we only kill bad adults. We never kill no. innocent men, women, or children. But you're amazing at technology. Yeah, that's exactly. So that's how we managed to do that. I think it's... Um, I think, and this is... I cannot explain to you how unpopular this view is. I think the line between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism gets thinner all the time. And it, it's possible it's now disappeared. And what's happened, I think, is that all the prejudices that Europeans used to visit upon Jews, they control our politics, they uh, make life worse for us, um, they make things Yeah, they have a terrible influence on, on, on our society and our community and so on. All those things that used to be said about the Jews are now, are now said about Israel. Yeah. Israel is the, there was a survey in Europe a few years ago which found that Israel is seen as the, number, the cause of global instability, um, the cause of most conflicts. Um, Israel is seen as controlling Western politics. You know, there's all the, the Israel lobby has uh, the American government eaten out of the palm of its hand and the British government and all these other governments. So that sense of Jewish power and Jewish control and Jewish wickedness, you can't really say that now. You wouldn't get much of a hearing if you went on TV and said, the Jews control everything. People would say you were racist and stupid. But if you said, if you replaced the word Jews with Israel, you, people would be clapping in the streets yeah. and you'd get a newspaper column. And they don't say the Jews control the world. They say the Israel lobby yes. controls America exactly. and thus. Exactly. So I think what's happened is that this, this, the anti-Semitism hatred which has been around as everyone knows for forever and in europe it's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years hasn't gone away um even after the holocaust you know there was this dream that after it, we realized what happened in europe just 70 years ago that we might wake up even then it didn't go away 
It just had to find another outlet. But do you think and it's now found another outlet? Yeah, but do you because this is my theory about it. I, there are, of course, multiple reasons why uh, the left is uh, the new hotbed of anti-Semitism in Europe. But I think after the Second World War, the European right had to confront their fascists and Nazis. Mm. You know, they had to drive them out. Uh, in Swedish, we say "muta dina galningar i grind," which is basically translated to "you have to keep your crazies at an arm's length," <laughs> um, because every movement attracts crazy people, mm-hmm. right? But the trick is to keep them out, uh, or just uh, a bit of a distance to yeah. them. Uh, but the European left never had to confront their anti-Semitism because they were fighting the Nazis, right? And in most people's minds, Nazis hate Jews. Other people don't hate Jews, yeah. right? So. Um, do you think that has something to do with it? I think, um, yes. It's, th- well, this is the big question. Why is that anti-Semitic prejudice, why is it more pronounced on the left now than it is on the right? Of course, it still exists on the right. You know, you still get neo-fascists and so on, but they are dwindling in number. Um, but on the left, it's become a more mainstream prejudice and it expresses itself as anti-Zionism, of course. But I think what's happened is that the left has found itself almost against its own knowledge going down the route of conspiracy theory. Um, and, and I think this is another product of the left has, having lost its way. So it loses its way and it becomes, it starts to have these very simplistic explanations for what's going wrong with society. So evil bankers, you know, instead of looking at the, the, the deep and profound uh, structural disarray with 21st century capitalism, which is a difficult thing to look at. Yes. It will say, oh, evil bankers are so greedy. Um, and so it, it has this sense that there are these kind of puppeteer, these puppeteers behind the scenes, bankers, uh, conglomerates, corporations, evil people, uh, media masterminds. And it's been thinking that kind of simplistic, moralistic thing for the past 20 years or so. And what that means is that it's buying more and more into a conspiratorial view of how society is organized and who runs it. And it's always these faceless people, these faceless evil people. And of course, where does every conspiracy theory end up? It ends up with the Jews. Yes. Every single one. You eventually get there. If you start off saying, bloody bankers, bloody Rupert Murdoch, controlling my mind, controlling the media, controlling everything, you will, if you go down that route, you will find yourself in two or three years' time saying bloody Jews yeah. control everything or bloody Zionists. So the left has, 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 has gone down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory thinking, and that means that anti, the anti-Semitic outlook has become more pronounced. But they don't recognize it. They don't, uh, and they don't recognize how strange their double standards are in relation to Israel. And I've tried to convince them, and it's very difficult to convince them. I, I say to them, why, on the issue of BDS, why do you boycott uh, Israeli produce or Israeli art or Israeli culture or Israeli academics, but you don't boycott American produce and American art? And, and they have no answer to that. America has killed far more people in the Middle East over the past 15 years than Israel has. Far more, infinitely more. It's caused absolute mayhem and chaos there to, to, of a biblical degree. And so they can't answer that question because there's no answer to that question that isn't terrifying. Yeah. Right? Because what are they going to say? Oh, we oh. hate Israel more 
because we're anti-Semitic. Because it's a Jewish state. Yeah. And that's the, that's the only answer that, you could, that could possibly be an honest one. So I find the anti-Israel sentiment quite scary, actually, and indicative of the, of the slightly crazy times we live in, and mainly of the, of the left's loss of any sense of historic uh, awareness or moral project or vision, it, the, the, the unanchoring of the left from its traditions and its, and its old vision means that it can drift further and further into these murky areas. So I think you're, you're right. I think the right had to have a reckoning with itself because the right was driven largely, uh, there was a lot of the politics of race on the right in the 19th century and the early 20th century, not just in Germany. Across no, Europe, everywhere. Including in Britain, you know, Winston Churchill and others, and, and uh, Labour Party eugenicists, so was on the left as well. This idea about the politics of race. And after the Second World War, we had to have a reckoning with the politics of race and of anti-Semitism and the idea that uh, different races have different sized skulls and different um, intellectual capacities and so on. We had to really think about that. So the right kind of had to have a discussion among itself. Uh, The left, on the other hand, ran ahead with the idea that it was the victor in this process. Uh, and it was wonderful, and it was so anti-racist and so anti-prejudice and so on, and yet finds itself in the situation that we have today. So I think um, BDS, I think, is obnoxious and awful. And I think the point I made in Stockholm at that debate is if you find yourself, if your politics involves standing up at a, a, a play in London and booing as someone is um, quoting from The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare, one of the great universalist plays, you know, if you prick me, do I not bleed? You know, we are the same. The great universalist piece of literature in many ways. If you find yourself standing up and booing at that or standing outside saying, "Take, don't show this play because it's produced by an Israeli theatre company, then you have lost all sense of moral proportion and all sense of decency. So I find BDS to be... I think it's a racist movement. And it talks about apartheid in Israel, which is hilariously ironic, because if anyone is enforcing cultural apartheid on the basis of race or nationality, then it's the BDS movement, which treats Israel as more wicked than every other nation on earth. Why does it do that? The only conclusion I can come to, and I'm very reluctant to throw the tag racist around because it's used far too freely these days, But the only conclusion I can come to if you do that to Israel and only to Israel is that you have a problem with this state because it's a Jewish state. Yeah, or at least you have a problem with hypocrisy. Yes. And on that note, I think we should have some beers. Uh, I agree. And I want to thank you so much for participating. Uh, Brendan, you are by far... I love libertarians in general, uh, but you are by far my favorite Marxist as well. (laughs) And, And I hope it's not the last time we talk to each other. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. I have been your host, Aaron Flam. And until next time, have a good time unit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.